Good morning. Looks like the crowd at the Hawkeye game yesterday. Um, Garrett Hufford is a Purdue Bowling fan. I question his taste. That'll be a fun game today. Um, one verse you thought you might have about a 10-minute sermon on one verse. That is not the way it's going to be. I've got six pages of notes, and I've edited those down, even further after the first service. So there is a lot here. Look at that verse. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled or, or pure. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulteress. This verse will bring an amen for many of you and will bring heartache for some of you. It will land with heaviness because there is conviction in your soul and that, that is a good thing because that means God is at work speaking to you. I, don't, I want us to begin with this, this truth. Men and women are religious beings. We will worship someone or something. We were created from the beginning for worship. Genesis 3, there's a lot of passages we're going to look through. Just jot them down. They're not not all going to be on the screen. There's a lot of stuff I want you to grasp and try to study at home. But this one in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are tempted by the the arch enemy of God. And Satan says to them and says to Eve first, did God actually say that you should not eat the fruit of any tree? That's the first challenge of temptation. Did God actually give us that command? Is that exactly what God wants you to do? Eve then saw that it was delightful, it was good for food, and it was appealing to her eyes. And so she ate and gave the fruit to her husband, Adam, and we know the rest of the story. Fellowship with God was broken because we did not honor what he had commanded us to do. And it broke our relationship with our Creator. Just notice again from this story very briefly, God's word is is questioned. Sin then is missing the mark of what's best for us. Sin is delightful and pleasurable. That's why it's tempting. It pulls us aside. She said, that looks really good to eat. I think I'll partake. That's why there's temptation. And then Satan in that passage said this, if you take of that fruit that God said, no, you should not have, you will become God. You will be like God. Therein is the origin of, the, uh, of idolatry throughout all of, all of the centuries, from graven images to where we are today. What is taking place in our heart We make sure that we fashion idols of self. 
And we need to just look in the mirror to see the God that we serve. From the beginning, Eve said, this is what I want. This is my desire. Did God really say, no, I can be like him. I can make my own life, my own decisions. And from the beginning, we have that nature. Later, God reveals his heart for his people in Exodus 20. The first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have what? No other gods before me. Because two through ten are gone if one isn't in place. If you don't honor and worship God alone, you will covet your neighbor's wife. You will covet, covet your, your, your neighbor's husband. You will go after things you shouldn't. You'll have desires that are sinful. You will not honor your parents. You will not honor the Sabbath because your God is your life and your heart and your purpose. It's seen throughout the Old Testament and New Testament in our culture today of the worship of self is seen in the reflection of unrestrained sexual desire. The Old Testament Canaanite religion, much of it was temples of basically of sexual experiences, brothels of worship. Same thing in Corinth in the New Testament. Aphrodite and Eros worshipped in culture. Sex honored as the ultimate expression of freedom and identity of who we are as humans apart from God. Romans 1 is very, very straight. Read it, mark it, look at it. The reflection of unrestrained sex leads into something that's totally unnatural. And God gives humanity over to the lust of their flesh, exchanging a truth for the lie. Marriage is whatever you want it to be. And it is the epitome and reflection of a heart and a nature and a culture and a world apart from a holy God. And his wrath, Paul said, is revealed. It's his created beings exchange the truth for a lie. See, we're, we're so much more sophisticated today. We don't have graven images in our houses, in our kitchens, our living room, in our car. But the idol of self is simply humanism. We make our own way. Our desires are our desires. Your desires are your truth is your truth. My truth is my, is my truth. That's the idol that we have shaped of self. So don't look down on the pagans of future, I mean past centuries. Look at your own heart. It's the idol from the very beginning. I know best. God does not. So Hebrews 13.4, the great context here flowing out of 12 chapters that God sees us in Christ and Christ is better than everything. And chapter 13 is this theology of application, understanding these grand truths of our salvation, the once for all sacrifice of Jesus. We should then live in brotherly love. We should live in hospitality. We should care for those in prison what we do with our money matters and the holiness of a relationship between a husband and wife 
an application of what is true, what is good, and what is just. There's three statements in this verse, Hebrews 13:4. Commands given to us by God. It's in the imperative form in the original language, not suggestions. This is what God wants of us in a marriage. He says, first of all, is to be held in high honor among all. That's the church. That's the world. That's our societies in which we live in. That was his heart from the beginning. That a man and a woman together with children in society was the foundation of life. Sex is for marriage alone. Marriage bed is another word for sex. It is to be pure. In the context of a married man and woman. And then the third part of that phrase, God will judge those who break this bond. Those who move sex from its created context in a marriage do so with great eternal consequences. He will judge the sexually immoral. Original word is the word we get, pornography. Any kind of sexual experience outside of marriage. And the adulteress, the one who steps outside that bond of marriage. And in the Greek, the last phrase, God is the last in the sentence. In English, we would have it like this, for God himself will judge. A personal understanding of a God who says this is a violation of my holiness and I will judge. A little personal history on marriage. As I reflect over four decades of ministries, and Matthew, I'm not a hundred, but I'm getting close. <laughs> the joy, two emotions. There's joy in seeing young couples come together in Jesus. What a joy as a mentor and, and the parson who does the ceremony over a hundred weddings. Nancy and I were trying to figure out how many. It was we just lost count. Did seven last summer? Seven. There was so much fun, wine and dancing and food, all in Jesus, of course. <laughs> the joy of seeing people put their lives together in Christ is just a beautiful thing to behold. The second emotion is a is a deep sadness. So many marriages never, never make it. And that brokenness is in our family. We feel it in our extended family. Christians who who know better. It touches us all. The heartbreak. I am going to move into the realm where the chance of offending you is very high. And I want to give you my email up front. Just write me at jake at CR Veritas. Those of you who know me, you know my heart. I want to cut it straight, but I do it in love. We are commanded to be truthful, and we're commanded to be loving. 
And I pray that you'll receive this today as we step through what marriage should be and it is not. The signs of the worship at the feet of the idol of self today is seen in the stats about marriage in this country just last year. In the U.S., about 50% of marriages end in divorce. The average age for couples who go through their first divorce is 30. The couples who tie the knot between the ages of 20 and 25 are 60% likely to end the marriage. The top two reasons for divorce, money and infidelity. You want to talk about a pandemic. This is a pandemic of disobedience and brokenness and sin. God hates divorce. Please understand that in the context of the scripture, it's a violation of the very honor of who he is and what he wants for his creation. In Matthew 19, in that passage is 3 through 12, divorce only if a spouse commits adultery and the spouse has broken the marital bonds, one may be free to marry. 1 Corinthians 7, there's a statement about the unbelieving spouse leaving. You may be free to marry. I say maybe with intention. It may not be what's best for you to do. Why? Because our God is in the business of reconciliation. He is pleased in healing and two lives that were broken to come back together. As much as we can see that when both partners say, I give up, I want to follow Jesus. He longs for that even in brokenness. Now there's a lot of nuances to when can I remarry and what has taken place in Christian circles All over this good world that we live in, there's good men and women who say there's some differences. I understand that. But there's two things that that we are agreed on. God hates it, and his heart is for reconciliation. Now, how that works out, that is in his plan. Further signs of the pandemic is pornography. The temples of worship, the brothels on our screens alluring, shameful, harmful to the beauty of the physical relationship in a marriage. And it's a huge temptation for men and women. None are excluded. You know that sin, and especially adultery, begins in the mind. We gather in through the eye gate when relationships are caught as nothing and then moves into the realm of physicality when the temptation is so strong and the desires are fueled. I must have this. Our view on sex reveals the heart. The selfishness of our heart. And Satan takes what is good And he takes what is right and he strips it away from the context that God intended. 
He smashes the boundaries, taking what is a good, intimate, physical relationship between a man and a woman in marriage and says, just do it whenever you want. It doesn't matter. Walk away if you feel like it. But this morning, I want to think apologetically about this. More than just because God said so, we should do it. I mean, that should be enough, right? If God said it, I should do it. I challenge my kids that way. Dad says, do it, you do it. Because, why? Because I'm your father. And I said so. They get older, they want reasons. They deserve reasons. We need reasons. Why is marriage, notice these questions, why marriage? Why is it so important? Why only between a man and a woman? Why sex only for marriage? Why can't we be free to just do what we want with multiple partners? And why is God so adamant about his judgment about sex outside of marriage? Why does he land so hard? I want us to hear the repetition. Scripture is full of repetition. Lest we forget. Let's look at these together. Why marriage? Why sex only for marriage? Answer very simply because of what marriage is in the eyes of God. What is marriage in the eyes of God? Four things. First of all, Genesis 1.27, we are image bearers of God. We have been created in his image, male and female, a reflection of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the flesh. God himself formed us, made us in his image. That should be sobering, stunning, and that alone to say, he made me. How then do I live? What are my relationships going to be like? Because I, I bear his image, soul, body, spirit, and mind, beautiful fashioning reflection of the God of heaven. Secondly, marriage is God's idea. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. In other words, a complementary partner, a corresponding partner to the man. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Can you imagine that? One by one they're coming by. That's a dog. That's a cat. Let's kill the cats now. No, no, no. Uh, I'm, I'm really not um, kidding. No. I do love cats. We had several cats. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for this man, literally, Adam, which means man, there was not found a helper that corresponded with him. He didn't find an ape that was close to him. Didn't find a giraffe. He didn't find anything in that in all of creation. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed it up, placed with the flesh, and the rib that the Lord had given him and taken from man, he made, he fashioned, 
He built into a woman and he brought her to man. Then man said, this is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man. And guys, you know what I'm talking about. He fashioned her just the way he knew his created man would love and enjoy. And she was attracted to him as well. And they became one flesh, set up marriage for all eternity. And they were naked and they were not ashamed. The beautiful purity of obedience before the fall. The innocence, the joy of relationship with God and with each other. God set that up in perfection in his garden of Eden before sin. This is what he desires for us. The question you may have, I had as I was looking at this, why why did the the patriarchs have women and concubines? Let me say it this way. They blew it. They paid for it, as we shall see. And some of them even said to us, don't do what I did. Even in that, God allowed that, but they paid the price in this life. We'll look at that in a minute. Marriage is God's idea. Sex is God's idea. We see in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, that we are called to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He wants us to have children that we can steward this earth. It's his design. Read chapter 1, 26 to 28. My father was the youngest of 13 on a farm. They needed every available hand to take care of that farm. Children are given to us through this process. It is God's desire. It is his design He opens wombs. He closes wombs. I know that. That's in God's divine grace. But he gives us this process that we may have children. That is why we are sitting here today. Second thing about sex and God's idea is it's pleasurable. And what he says is important and necessary for creation, he makes enjoyable. Think about your taste buds. We, need, we survive on nutrition. We've got to have food to live. And so he created this wonderful thing in the tongue that some of us lost during COVID. You know how bad that was? You ate out of mechanical movement. It didn't taste good, but you knew you needed it and you had it. The joy of taste buds. What is necessary to live, he makes enjoyable and attractive And sex between a man and a woman is necessary for procreation and is a pleasure all by itself. Before the kids, after the kids, when you're up, the kids are grown up and they're figuring things on their own, sex is still pleasurable. It's a great gift that God has has given us. And it is better than chocolate. (laughs) Hallmark is wrong. 
Fourth thing, and the most important, marriage is a spiritual union. I want us to see this language about God's people. Just Deuteronomy 14.2, for you are a holy people unto the Lord. Ephesians 5, we're to love our wives as Christ loves the church. The imagery is, is beautiful about the union as we come together in a husband and wife and how it reflects Christ's love for his church. Revelation 19, 6 through 9, you look ahead to the, the end of all things and Christ comes and makes everything new. There's this beautiful marriage feast of the Lamb and the church, his bride, in white linen reflecting the righteousness of the saints through Jesus. And the husband, Jesus Christ, comes and meets his bride, this church of holiness. And it's a pure and a beautiful vision of worship together as a husband and a wife for all eternity in a spiritual sense. That's his image from Genesis 1 to Revelation 19. The beautiful spiritual union. And it's why it's held in such high esteem. It's a picture of his spiritual relationship with his people. From Israel to the church. The imagery is stunning. The imagery is beautiful. And again, so we understand that it's a spiritual one flesh union in a marriage that reflects that holiness. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. There's just one verse out of that passage in verses 13 to 20. And Paul gives us a warning. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. We do not give our bodies because we give our souls, we break a beautiful, holy, spiritual union. How then? How then do I stay pure? In the face of our culture and temptation, how do we do that? Look at Proverbs chapter 5. The first thing we have in this is heed the warnings because there are consequences in this life. Solomon writes this, and he says, Do not do what I did. Here are the warnings if you walk away from a marriage relationship. If you go after someone outside the marriage bed, look at verse 11. At the end of your life, you groan. And when your flesh and your body are consumed, and you say, How I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers. Or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter room, and it's public. It's in the assembled congregation. The breach of trust, the brokenness, the life given to relationships outside of a marriage. David, King David, who already had more than one wife, saw Bathsheba bathing one day and said, I want her as well. He arranged for her to come into his bedchamber, had sex. She got pregnant, but she was married. And David had had her husband put in the front lines of battle and killed. And he took this grieving widow into his home 
as another wife. And Nathan the prophet came and said, you didn't fool anybody. What you did in private, God saw. And even in his confession in Psalm 51 is a beautiful confession of David's heart. He was forgiven by his God. He was a man after God's own heart. And he was forgiven. But he bore civil war and the sword in his home until he died. Brothers fighting brothers. Stealing the kingdom or trying to steal the kingdom from his own father. You can sin and you can be forgiven, but it will cost you in this life. That's why Solomon says in Proverbs 5, don't do it. Your best defense is stop. Don't get caught up in it. You can be forgiven. God restores you. But the breach of trust is an awful thing to overcome. Solomon's wives turned his head. 1 Corinthians 11, he had... 700 wives, scripture says, princesses and 300 concubines. Let's just put it this way, at a thousand woman harem. Just saying, what? All these women at his command and children and multiple children. You know that Israel was divided later because his children fought each other? That's the consequences in this life. You can have everything you want, Solomon, all the riches, all the women, Solomon says, no. Look what he says in verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving, dear, and a graceful doe, the, the delicacy, the tenderness of seeing the deer running through the forest. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated. Be drawn away. Give everything you have to your wife. Don't give it to anyone else. Don't let your your fountain be dispersed, your love be dispersed. Focus in on the wife of your youth. And then he says in Ecclesiastes 9.9, he says, live happily with the woman or the man that you love. That that spouse that God, God gives you is your reward for all your earthly toil. You come home and you love and you continue to love and you love again with the wife or the husband of your youth. How do you express it? How do you show it? What does it look like in your home? And then for singles or here, waiting for that marriage partner. See the desire of God for you in marriage. Wait. Hold yourself back. Do not even go to first base. That's still in one sense having sex. You can't go to first base. I didn't have sex. You want to go all the way home. You know you do. Teens are going, yeah, we know it. I was a teen once, 80 years ago. <laughs> you want to go home, but see the understanding and discipline yourself. Stay out of places and contexts where you'll be most tempted. Understand and think this. God is all satisfying. You're going to have to repeat that. 
God is all satisfying. Whatever I see in front of me and the experiences I want to have will be pleasurable, but I want to see God as satisfying. I want to obey him more than anything else. I want to trust him and I want to save myself. If you have to have that must-have sexual experience, you are idolizing yourself, your God. Temper your desires. Let holiness trump your horniness. Young ladies, you're not married. Don't give away your body. Don't give your soul away. Nancy and I have been working with young people all of our lives in different contexts, and we see the sadness. We have seen the hurt and the depression when young women give themselves away to their boyfriend at high school or college. Save yourself. Give that gift to the man that God's going to bring to you. Because again, because of what sex is, what marriage is, you break that spiritual oneness and union. And guys, stop it. Leave them alone. Go chew on a brass doorknob. Do something, but don't go after your girl. Honor her. She's valuable in God's eyes. Your desire is good, but not then. Be holy before God, and it is a challenge in our culture. It's too late to pray. When you're alone in an apartment, you better run. Be holy before God. So it leads us to our big idea, honor marriage as lifelong worship of God. Stay married. Work it out. You may need to separate for protection. We understand that there's all kinds of challenges. But God is in the business of reconciliation. And he needs two people to do that, two people to repent and seek God's face. I understand the challenges of sin. Try to figure it out in the Lord. Get the help you need. But stay married. Pursue your spouse. In Hebrews, the last part of this verse, God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Why is God so adamant? Why is he so adamant about judgment? We've just talked about it. It breaks the spiritual bond with God and with our spouse. Fourteen chapters of Hosea you need to read. Hosea, the prophet in Israel, God says to him, I want you to marry a prostitute and I want you to have children by her and she will leave you and she will come back and I want you to take her back. And Hosea says, why? God says, so you know how I feel. When my people leave me and worship other gods, Please understand how I feel 
and I want my people back. I want you to understand how to give this message. So return, O Israel, God said in chapter 14 to the Lord your God, say to him, take away our sin, accept what is good. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger. Get this, my anger has turned from them. They're coming back. How is the anger of God turned away against sin and turned away from it? It's our final question. How do we turn the wrath of God away in judgment of this sin and all sin? Romans 6, 23, many of you can quote it. The wages of sin is death. Do you want to be judged in your sin? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's either our own sin or his righteousness. I'm going to go my own way. This is my heart. This is my desire. God, you can't tell me. Did you really say this? That's death. Or do I receive the free gift of God through Jesus Christ and bear his righteousness? You talk about starting over. This is the way to start over wherever you are in your relationship. He can make you a virgin again spiritually. You can start clean with him because your sin has been forgiven in Christ. All you need to do is say, yes, I believe what Jesus Christ has done for me. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God made him, made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Here's what it looks like in our life from 1 John. We are to confess our sins because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we get caught up in that understanding. We take our sin before him. And John goes on to say, you can't say you haven't sinned. You make God a liar. I'm okay. No, you're not. If we acknowledge our need of God, our confession, especially as the people of God, every day, Jesus Christ says, take their sin and lay it on me. This is my righteousness. Satan is accusing us before the Father. Look at your children are doing. But Jesus says, hey, they confessed. Lay their sin on my, my lap. Be seen in my righteousness, I forgive. That's the beauty, that's the mercy, that's the joy of changing our lives and living in ways, especially in the context of our sexuality and our relationships, that honors the God of heaven. And we are going to partake in what that is. This cup and this bread, we're saying, God, take my sin. You have given your life. You shed your blood. You have a broken body that you'll take of all of our sins on your body on the tree. And you turn the wrath of God onto yourself and paid the penalty that we deserve. 
That's the judgment that you want. Forsake your sin. Turn to the Savior who gave his life for you and wants you to live in holiness. Amen? Father, you are so good to us beyond measure. You created us. You gave us beautiful gifts. You gave us a spouse. And you give us children. But above all, you want a union that reflects your love for us. And thank you that it's possible through Jesus Christ, our Lord. May we repent. May we confess. May we bear the righteousness of Christ because of the cross. We thank you that that is possible. Lord, we love you. Help us to love each other in pure and holy ways as we see the day approaching. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.